Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Roz Taylor. Brexit is done insofar as it will ever be. But what did Brexit do to us? How did it polarise us? How did it change Parliament? Can we understand what went wrong and how to stop it happening again? Joining me are two experts on the long saga of Brexit and Parliament, whose book about it has just come out. Meg Russell and Lisa James, both of the Constitution Unit at University College London. Welcome to The Bunker. Hello, nice to be here. Hello, good to be here. When we talk about Brexit, sometimes a central fact gets overlooked, and that's despite the years of wrangling, and it did seem to go on for so long, didn't it? We did not get the Brexit that the majority of Britons would have preferred. And when we ask why that is, we have to go back to the referendum campaign itself, don't we? Well, obviously, there were two key things about the referendum. One was that it was held by David Cameron in a spirit of never expecting leave to win. And related to that, that there was no preparation for a leave outcome. So there was an enormous lack of clarity about what leave should mean in its detail. And after David Cameron had left the stage um, the morning after the referendum, basically that conundrum was handed to Parliament to work out, which was a very difficult task. And did we have any signals early on about what direction it would take? Or was it at the time, looking back, was it entirely open what kind of Brexit it would be? I seem to remember commissioning articles on would there be a soft Brexit? Would there be a hard Brexit? Would there be another kind of Brexit like Norway that we couldn't even imagine? Were there any clues early on that it would turn out to be just as hard as it as it was? Well, I think the one of the very interesting things that was pointed out by one of the people we spoke to um, in the course of our research for the book is that these terms of hard Brexit and soft Brexit really only come about after the referendum. And it's really after the referendum that everyone involved starts to grapple with the realities of what Brexit means and the trade-offs that need to be taken. There were some reasonably early signs that hard Brexit was likely to be the direction. You can go back to the Lancaster House speech that Theresa May gave in January 2017. And one of the things that we have to look at when we try to understand this is what's going on inside the Conservative Party. So much of the story of Brexit is the story of what's happening in the Conservative Party in these years, which factions are coming to dominance, which ones are struggling with different things. Um, and at this stage, the you know, the people who have been running the Leave campaign have quite a direct line into number 10 because you know, it is reasonable to assume that they, you know, perhaps more than any others, may have been thinking at this stage about what Brexit might look like. Mm. I think there's a dynamic where Theresa May, who's, who lands up with this enormously difficult hand to play after Cameron has gone, she's determined because she had but only just been on the Remain side. Uh, she'd been very quiet during the campaign, but firstly, she feels like she's got something to prove, that she has to prove that she is really serious about delivering Brexit. But also, I suspect that she quite reasonably looked to the people who had been campaigning for Brexit for the signals of which direction to go. And she very quickly picked up these ideas that we were going to get get control of immigration, effectively that we were going to leave the customs union and the single market, which went into, one, into that early speech, uh, which very much boxed her in when they began to realise quite how difficult it was going to be to balance that up, particularly with the needs of respecting the Good Friday, the Belfast Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland and not having a hard border. Um, but they clearly, because the thinking hadn't been done in advance, were unprepared for that. So she sort of waded into certain commitments, her famous red lines, uh, which it was then very difficult for her to row back from. And then when she was ousted, because essentially she couldn't get 
the deal that she wanted through Parliament. Boris Johnson, of course, took over. And unlike some Conservatives, Boris Johnson did not badly want Brexit, though, of course, he did support leave. But there is every evidence to suggest that he was on the edge in terms of deciding what to back in 2016. And yet his ascent to power was absolutely dependent on it, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think Boris Johnson aligned himself very much with the delivery of Brexit. And you see that right from the referendum campaign when he was a very, very prominent and very important figure in the Leave campaign. As, as kind of some researchers suggested, you know, one of the politicians more trusted, not that anyone was particularly greatly trusted, but more trusted than others on the European issue. So from that point, Boris Johnson was very closely tied into the Leave campaign um, and into the pro-Brexit factions in the Conservative Party, and particularly those who are willing to embrace a hard Brexit. And he pops up repeatedly throughout the story, um, particularly at the moments when Theresa May finds herself in particular trouble with her party um, around her ill-fated conference speech, um, around some of the speeches that she made on Brexit policy, which provoked outrage. Very often afterwards, there will be a telegraph column from Boris Johnson weighing in on his on you know, his side of the matter. Yeah. And of course, I mean, you have his being forced out of the leadership contest in 2016 with that statement from Michael Gove about how Johnson is unfit to lead. And right from that moment, he's the kind of he's the one hanging around in the background, breathing down her neck, looking for an opportunity and one of the enormous difficulties of this, which you know maybe we're going to come on to, is that she had really put all of her eggs in the Conservative Party basket. Uh, she was absolutely tribally a Conservative politician, and she never seemed to have a sort of flicker of, of consideration when she took over that she might need a broader alliance in order to be able to li- deliver Brexit in this very, very polarised environment. In fact, she sort of deepened the polarisation by always wishing to turn the criticism towards the opposition, always wishing to denounce Remainers, having been a sort of ambiguous Remainer herself, to, to, to build that dividing line for sort of electoral purposes, which meant that, again, she was boxed into needing support from her party and her own hardliners. And the numbers in Parliament were very, very tight. You get a growing alienation of the ERG group with Johnson as their sort of potential alternative prime minister, Um, And it's harder and harder for her to be able to build an alliance which will actually deliver Brexit, notwithstanding that she really tried very hard to do so. And as you say, the numbers were tight. And one of the reasons the numbers were tight is that most MPs in 2016 had not voted for Brexit, had they? Most of them were Remainers. And so you had this mismatch between uh, what I think Theresa May, and correct me if I'm wrong, described as a very simple, clear instruction from the British people to leave the European Union, (laughs) which turned out to be this this mismatch uh, between Parliament and between what was perceived as the will of the people. And how did that play out as time went on? Well, I think, I mean, of course, it wasn't an absolutely simple, clear instruction, was it? The absolutely simple, clear instruction would have been the detail of a Brexit deal. But we were very far away from that. And, you know, it's notable that in the campaign, aside from in Northern Ireland itself, Northern Ireland was simply not an issue. We didn't hear discussion about should we be should we be in the customs union single market? What about what about EFTA options, this kind of thing? Even Article 50 and the process was never discussed until after the referendum had had um, taken place. 
and I think also we have to look at what's happening um, with the Brexit process itself and the kind of advantages and disadvantages that it gives to different groups. Because as Meg says, you have a lot of people who are trying to interpret a, a fairly unclear instruction. They're looking at lots and lots of different options. But what's always happening in the background is that the clock is ticking. From the moment that Article 50 is triggered, you have a two, this two-year timeline and at the end of it, no deal Brexit is the default outcome. And that means that everyone is struggling to build a majority that doesn't exist except for one group. Mm. The only people who don't need a majority are the people who are happy to contemplate a no deal Brexit because they just have to block things. And it's far easier to block things than it is to build a substantive majority. And this brings us back to your original question of you. Why wasn't there a softer Brexit? Um, when that you know, appeared to many people at the outset like the sort of sensible compromise position in which we would surely end up. And the answer actually is that you know, it's very easy for a group of kind of you know, 650 MPs to fragment. It's very, very hard to build a majority for any one version of anything. It's far, far easier just to say no to everything. And of course, we saw that in the indicative votes processes. And this repeated refusal to saying no to things, it played into what happened with the efforts to get a second referendum, didn't it? Because for me, it always seemed a bit of a, of a paradox because... MPs were basically being uh, accused of undermining the popular will. And so logically, in a way, the thing to do would have been to go back and say to the electorate, do you want a Brexit where you would stay in the single market? Or do you want a hard Brexit potentially with no deal? And yet, perhaps precisely because they did feel this great responsibility that they did have to act on behalf of the people and not hand this awful question over to the electorate again, they didn't. They didn't go for the second referendum. But how did you how did you see it? Well, I think the second referendum, I mean, one of the key moments, there are many, many key moments in the book. You know, we start with the pressures for the referendum in the first place, some of which came from inside Parliament. And then you have the passage of the referendum, the referendum bill to facilitate it. And then you have the rest of the book dedicated to the fallout. But another really key moment is the 2017 general election, when, of course, Theresa May, she, didn't, she, she originally took over the Conservative Party leadership on a promise that she wouldn't hold an early general election. Then the polling numbers were looking so far in the party's favour that she came under enormous pressure from her colleagues to, to call one, which she did. They were expecting a landslide initially, which would have made it a great deal easier to deliver Brexit. It would have isolated the ERG hardliners. It would have meant that she could have got something through that was a more moderate form of Brexit. But of course, that utterly failed. And we ended up uh, with a hung parliament. And one of the results, there were various results of that election. It's a really pivotal moment. It weakens her within her party. She's nearly brought down. She doesn't have any political capital anymore to impose things on her party. The numbers in Parliament are very weak. Jeremy Corbyn, who might have been forced out if Labour had done very badly in that election, and there were people waiting in the background to force him out within his own party, is actually strengthened, which makes it harder to do a cross-party deal. But also you have a new sense of polarisation because it feels like it's almost like a replay of the referendum with the 48-52 outcome. People feel particularly on the sort of Remain side, that something else is within their grasp. And actually, I think both sides become 
less willing to compromise from that point on. It was never great, but it gets worse at that moment because the hardliners are determined not to let things go and they've got real, really serious control of Theresa May by that point. And on the other hand, the people on, on the Labour side in particular who might have been willing to compromise around a soft Brexit, quite a lot of them begin to think they could get a second referendum instead. And of course, as you say, a second referendum could very rationally have been about getting approval for a deal. But many people see it as an opportunity for reversing Brexit. And, you know, we at the Constitution in it did work on what a second referendum might look like. We published a report at that time. And it was clear that people didn't even have agreement on what the referendum question should be. So that itself was very contested. And I think that's a really important point, because when people talk about you, why a second referendum did referendum did or didn't happen, it's very tempting to go back to key votes. You know, there were amendments put down to say we should have another referendum you know, uh, at various moments. And there are times when some of our interviewees thought they might have been you know, within a whisker of getting a majority. They thought maybe if we can get the vote through, we might just about get a majority together. But of course, there were overwhelming majorities for votes on the principle of Brexit. A vote on the principle of a thing is the easiest part. You then have to have the legislation that would implement the referendum that says, you, this is the deal versus remain or this is the deal versus no deal. And that would have been an absolutely enormous fight. Let's talk about John Burko because... When you talk about Parliament, obviously the Speaker is and, and incredibly important. And he was a controversial speaker. And he was a controversial speaker at an extraordinary time. With the benefit of hindsight, did he take the right approach? Did he do the right thing? I think there are ways in which there are certainly ways in which you can criticise John Burkow, but it's a bit like Theresa May. I mean, you know, this is a horrible situation for everybody. There's plenty of criticism of Theresa May in the book, but also she was dealt an incredibly difficult hand and it would have been very, very hard for anybody. You know, you would have had to be a really exceptional person to find your way out of the position that she was in. It might have been possible, but there's no certainty. And similarly, Burkow being in the chair at that time was incredibly difficult because Parliament was very divided. And particularly after the 2017 general election, when the government has no majority, um, it's sort of got a thin, very, very thin majority if it's got the DUP on board. But as we've just been hearing, they were increasingly losing the DUP. I think that Burkow, you know, he could have done less grandstanding at times. Um, you know, there were things about his personal style that didn't particularly help the situation. One interesting thing that comes out in the book, and we do have this chapter at the beginning, which is, a you know, the pre-story to the referendum, which covers decades, um, but particularly the Cameron years in the run-up to the decision to hold the referendum. Burkow, of course, historically had been a Eurosceptic. You know, he was on he was on the hard right of the Conservative Party himself. And in calling for the referendum, he facilitated the Eurosceptic backbenchers getting that on the agenda. He broke some rules, actually. I mean, well, his not quite break the rules because, of course, he sort of makes the rules. But some of his most controversial decisions, one of his most controversial decisions was back then to allow um, an amendment to the Queen's speech to demand a referendum, which was coming from the Eurosceptic rebels. Later on, he's seen very much as a friend of the Remainers. But I think that does show that to an extent, Burkow was driven by a genuine belief that the backbench voice should be heard, that the parliamentary voice should be heard rather than just the governmental 
voice. And I think it shows also just how highly politicised all of these procedural decisions were. Because when you go back through Burko's decisions in the book, there are some where he does break with precedent or where he stretches precedent. There are also some which are entirely uncontroversial from a procedural angle. Um, so there are, for example, there's something called the same question rule, which says essentially if, par- if you bring a proposition to Parliament and it votes it down, you can't just bring back the same thing the next day. It's there to stop the government from barracking MPs. Um, when Burko applies this, which is entirely in line with precedent and you know, entirely to be expected, we start getting these um, sort of very angry quotes coming out of what's then Johnson's number 10 about you know, the Speaker blocking Brexit, this kind of attempt to defy the will of the people. And I think what it shows is that by the time you get kind of a little way into the Brexit process, everything has come to be seen as being about remain or leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a general reluctance to believe, I think on either side at times, that any decision can be made from any other angle, that you know, that any any decision isn't purely an attempt to advance one side or the other of this argument. Any compromise is possible at all. Indeed. Without getting too nerdy, coming back to the same question rule just for a moment, I think this is very much tangled up with the fact that we had this extraordinary situation of a minority government just at the time when we were debating this very, very divisive issue. Because you said that it, um, that rule exists to prevent the government sort of bossing Parliament around. In fact, most of the time that wouldn't be the case. It's about preventing backbenchers bringing things back over and over and over again. Because normally the government would simply be able to squash things using its majority, but the government didn't have a majority, and actually, because May had not been able to get her deal through on two occasions and suffered those huge historic defeats. It was the government that was trying to bring things forward over and over and over again, which would not normally be the case. And some of the things that Burkow did, I think, were about sort of effect and counter-effect, attack and counter-attack. So Burkow gets particularly angry after, if you remember, Theresa May brought forward her deal for the first time. It was subject to three days of debate. It was absolutely clear that it was going to be heading for defeat. I mean, the first person up on his feet, it's important to remember, was Boris Johnson to castigate the deal from the backbenches. And that sort of set the tone for what then happened over the next three days, where you had one conservative after another standing up and saying that this is not acceptable. She was being advised quite publicly by people like Graham Brady, the the chair of the 1922 committee, that the vote ought to be pulled, which ultimately it was three days into a supposedly five-day debate. Burkow was furious about this. He, he made this statement about how 164 MPs had spoken, that this was deeply discourteous to the House of Commons for the government to pull the vote. Really unusual circumstances. And I think that you see him sort of fighting back at times on behalf of Parliament against that level of government control. So another thing that the government does is block repeatedly the opportunity for the opposition to get time on the agenda. You normally have opposition days. There was a period of five months where the government prevented the opposition getting any, being able to put anything onto the agenda. And it's out of that that comes some of these things that became very controversial, the so-called seizing of the agenda, um, the suspension of the famous, or maybe not so famous, but in our world, standing order number 14, which normally gives the government control of the agenda. Burkow isn't actually making a lot of those decisions. He can't control the parliamentary agenda, but he can facilitate the House to take decisions. And ultimately, the House decides to take control of its own agenda 
rather than the government controlling because the government is failing to get any agreement. And you get to this situation where there are many people trying to form alternative uh, majorities within Parliament after Theresa May's vote, uh, after Theresa May's deal has failed to find a majority, and it becomes very chaotic uh, with the with the indicative votes, different options put on the table, everything failing to reach a majority. But all that Burkow has done is allow parliamentarians to take decisions. He didn't make that situation. And then there was the moment when Boris Johnson prorogued Parliament. It felt like very much a turning point in this whole saga to me. I don't know how it felt for you in the Constitution Unit. And of course, afterwards, the Supreme Court declared that he'd been wrong to do so. Was that really an unprecedented moment for you? Yes, I think it was. Um, I think you know, we'd had indications that something like this could be on the cards. Um, it was actually first suggested by Dominic Raab, who was one of the Conservative leadership can- contenders. When he suggested that, a number of uh, the other people who were you know, at that point fighting for the Conservative leadership came out and said, you know, we don't think we can do this. This is far beyond our constitutional norms. This is not how you behave. Boris Johnson was far more equivocal. It did feel like something that was quite a significant departure. I think there were some attempts at the time to claim that you know, it was nothing out of the ordinary, it was only an extra few days. Um, I think those were, were fairly unconvincing. After the fact, uh, members of Johnson's team at the time have essentially come out and said that, yes, this was about Brexit. It was an attempt to stop Parliament from making trouble during you know, those crucial few weeks. I think this is part of the sort of bigger trajectory. Uh, And if you look at how it was allowed to happen, I mean, if you'd said a few years ago, you know, before the referendum, that a prime minister would try to suspend parliament for weeks in order to prevent something being discussed, you know, most people, I think, would be outraged by that suggestion. But we had reached, you know, we'd we'd reached such an impasse in the Brexit process and it had become so unpleasant and the public were absolutely fed up of it. Parliamentarians were absolutely exhausted and, you know, Mm. their defences were very, very low. But I think that the roots of Johnson's ability to do that can be found to an extent in Theresa May's rhetoric in the earlier period because she... She herself, unfortunately, was very critical of Parliament. And one of the things that we draw out in the book, you know, we say one of our lines is that this was essentially an argument inside the Conservative Party for which Parliament got the blame because Parliament became a subject of criticism and blame, particularly from the Brexit supporting newspapers for having got in the way of the will of the people. And actually, that rhetoric was fed to an extent by Theresa May, who rather than ever publicly um, acknowledging that it was people inside her own party and indeed people who had called for the referendum and were supporters of Brexit who were primarily responsible for her not being able to get a majority in Parliament for the deal that she had negotiated. She blamed Parliament and she had a tendency to sort of allied Parliament with Remainers. So she she created this sense, even around the first Miller case, if you remember the, the case over whether Parliament should have a say in the triggering of Article 50. In her Conservative Party conference speech that year, she said that those people who were supporting Parliament's right to have a say on Article 50 were not defending democracy. They were trying to undermine democracy or words to that effect. So she did that repeatedly through the process as she got more and more frustrated. She laid the blame on Parliament as an ironic moment when um, Boris Johnson uses one of his many telegraph columns to actually criticise her for having criticised Parliament. But then when he takes over, you find that she's laid the ground 
for him to try and shut Parliament down and blame Parliament for being the root of the problem. And the words that appear in his manifesto for the 2019 election use even more ferocious language about Parliament being the problem than she would ever have dared to use. And, you know, this this is the populist line which runs through this, that Parliament is standing in the way of the people. She actually started this, but he made it much, much worse and tried to exploit it for electoral purposes. And it is a feature of the UK system as well that, as we've kind of alluded to a couple of times um, in the discussion, Parliament has relatively little control, or I should say the House of Commons has relatively little control over when it sits and what it discusses. Um, an awful lot of this power sits with the executive. Um, and that prorogation, you know, it is for the prime minister to advise the monarch to prorogue. Mm. And the thing that usually you know, holds prime ministers back from uh, abusing that power is the system of kind of constitutional norms of expectations, what some people have called the good chaps theory in the past, you know, that sense that there is a way in which politics is done. And Brexit broke that down. And what you what we saw with the prorogation was that when that was broken down, the formal systems had relatively little that would defend Parliament against an executive who wanted to abuse that power. Yes, I remember Remainers, you know, even hoping that the Queen would somehow step in, which always seemed to me quite risible idea that she would. But there was nonetheless this hope that the monarchy would somehow intervene and prevent Parliament being being sidelined. It was very striking that some of the people that Lisa referred to who spoke up very loudly against prorogation when it was mooted by Dominic Raab during the leadership contest actually served in Johnson's cabinet and did not resign when he did that. Matt Hancock was one of those people. Sajid Javid, I think, was another one. Jeremy Hunt had been very outspoken against the prorogation, but didn't serve under Johnson. But basically, by then, people were just feeling like there's no way out. We're willing to try anything. Mm. Um, And that was a really a low point. So Parliament had this double blow of almost triple, really, with prorogation, and then it was dissolved so that Boris Johnson could go to the country and, as he saw it, have mandate for uh, his version of Brexit. And then there was COVID, which, of course, shut down Parliament for a little while, and then it was remote. Are we starting to recover from this period now? Do you do you have hopes that Parliament might be getting back to what it was? or st- Do we still very much have a legacy of this period? I think there is some legacy. You know, I hope... Both things are true, that we are recovering, but we're not there yet for Mm. certain. During the Brexit period, because of the tight numbers and the divisions, there was a general tendency on the part of government to try and keep things away from Parliament as much as possible. They were frightened of votes. They were frightened of being defeated. There was enormous defensiveness on the part of government. Any form of scrutiny was going to be used to undermine their policy in a polarised environment. We went straight from that into covid Uh, where there were very practical reasons that Parliament couldn't meet in the usual way. But we're also then in the Johnson era. And Johnson, I think, was never a person who was interested in scrutiny. COVID facilitated that further. Those things are behind us. But I think we need to relearn the benefits of parliamentary scrutiny. If you make policy in haste, you will often repent at leisure. Um, it's a way of making bad policy. We've seen some examples in recent, in, in the more recent period, um, when Johnson bounced through his um, national insurance change. Within about 24, 48 hours, a bill came out and they were all forced to vote for it. Then later on, it became this source of concern and ultimately got overturned. And we may be seeing the same thing now on small boats. Um, you know, they're trying to push that legislation through Parliament, in, through the House of Commons in three days very little scrutiny, lots of frustration on the back benches. 
And I think that you wouldn't have even seen an attempt to do something like that if you look back sort of 10 years ago or, you know, to the pre-Brexit period. And we need to relearn how to do scrutiny properly and how to respect and appreciate the benefits of having Parliament as an open forum where people with different points of view come together, listen to evidence, are willing to listen to each other and compromise and come up with the best uh, best policy in the interests of the country. Very quick question. Should we ever have a referendum again? <laughs> That's a very, very big question. <laughs> it is simultaneously very quick, but also very big. Um, I mean, it's I think one of the one of the ironies of the the Brexit referendum itself it's only the third all UK referendum that's ever been held um but of course there have been other referendums at um you know, at national levels at subnational levels um and I think the chances of those at least continuing are very very high um I don't think you know, you can you can put the referendum genie back in the bottle uh, entirely and so I think the the really important question is what we have to learn from the EU referendum and I think there is an awful lot we can learn from it um in particular the way that it was fought you know, on an unclear prospectus, that the civil service did not prepare for both outcomes. There are also um, you know, practical takeaways about the quality of information that's provided to voters, you know, what fact-checking services um, can do. Um, but I think the really important thing it shows is you know, the importance of having a plan and the dangers of using a referendum as a way to try to diffuse a question, um, because that was essentially you know, one of the animating factors behind the Brexit referendum, this attempt to solve the problem once and for all within the Conservative Party. Um, and as we have written at great length, that is not how it turned out. Megan Lisa, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. The Parliamentary Battle Over Brexit is published by Oxford University Press. And if you go to the Constitution Unit website, you can get a 30% discount on the cover price. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. Bunker Daily was presented by Podmasters contributing editor Ros Taylor. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Kasia Tomashevich and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by James Parrott. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>